Hello and welcome to Making UX Work. I am Joe Natoli. Our focus here is on folks like you doing the tough, often unglamorous work of UX in the real world. My guests share their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Stash Studio, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome, something obviously very close to my heart for those of you that know me. The Stash mantra is that even in the darkest times, there is a light revealing prosperity. Find your light, let it guide you through the darkness. Visit stash.studio to check out their incredibly well-designed products and learn more. My guest today is Will Sikora, who has been working in design for over a decade. From a start in traditional graphic design to immersing himself in digital and web experiences, he has worked in a multitude of industries, including hospitality, financial services, and government. Will has also worked independently as a freelance consultant, and he has launched his own startup along the way. Suffice to say that Will is no stranger to taking risks, particularly when doing so means being true to himself. Here's my conversation with Will Sikora on Making UX Work. So, Will, how are you? I'm good, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. A lot happening in your life. Yeah, a lot has happened. At least fairly, fairly recently. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> Specifically what I'm referring to, and now as I look again at your LinkedIn profile, you founded Covalent or Covalent. Covalent, yep. Covalent. Mm-hmm. In, I'm seeing it's actually 2017. That seems more recent to me than it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. It, the idea for it actually existed for a number of years before that. I just hadn't really kind of sat down and decided what it was going to look like until around 2017. Mm-hmm. Well, talk to me about that, about you know what led up to this or the journey up to it and start wherever you feel is, is appropriate. I'm curious. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a little bit of a crazy story and I'll, I'll, I'll skip to the, the cliff notes, but the actual origin began uh, shortly after my wife and I bought our house. We'd gotten married like six months prior, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit longer than that, and uh, moved to Mount Airy. Maryland, which is awesome. It's a really nice spot. But shortly after we moved into our, our house. What year was this? I'm sorry. This was uh, 2012. Okay. Moved in. And um, shortly after we moved in, our wells went dry. <laughs> and it just happens to be that like the geology of where we are situated is kind of up on a ridge. And we didn't have the potential to actually drill more wells. So we kind of launched into this ultimately three years sake of trying to get connected to town water. Wow. And so it was uh, a big pain in the neck. It was expensive at the same time. And uh, ultimately it kind of necessitated not just working a day job, but also freelancing mm. to help pay for like the legal bills of paying the lawyer and then the permit fees and the construction eventually. So it got it got pretty pricey. I can imagine. Yeah. Freelancing was kind of how um, I was able to kind of supplement and, and continue to kind of make sure that things were paid for uh, while we were working towards finally getting connected. And as I was freelancing as a designer, I was going after design jobs, but a lot of times my clients were working on bigger projects that needed uh, like writers or developers to build custom widgets or things like um that that kind of complemented what I was doing as a designer, but I wasn't necessarily a jack of all trades to deliver on everything across the board that they needed. So I found myself going to other people I knew, other creatives, developers, and and kind of pulling them into projects. And so we would tackle it together, which allowed us to go after bigger jobs together and, and bigger budgets. And so that was awesome. My challenge was that you know everybody was living their own lives. And so mm-hmm. finding people that were available when I knew I needed them uh, proved to be a bit of a challenge. And so I was like looking at LinkedIn one day and I was like, I just wish I could look at, you know, all the freelancers I knew and see their current availability. So I could, you know, know who to reach out to and just save time instead of doing the back and forth of like, Hey, can you work on this job? And not hearing back for a day or two and then hearing no, and then having to look for somebody else. And then, uh, I just wanted a consolidated place where I could kind of access the Mm -hmm. people I knew and, and kind of leverage them as I needed to. And so that kind of planted the seeds for covalent. Um, this kind of need to collaborate with other freelancers. It 
kind of had been sitting in the back of my head for a while, and I changed jobs from back then. I was with Micros right before they got acquired by Oracle, and then I went over the cheaper price, and I was working there, and it was a nice job where you know I didn't really have to worry as much. The compensation was nice, mm-hmm. and so Covalent kind of had fallen from this. Let's build it to kind of back burner again. And it wasn't until I decided to get my master's where it kind of popped back up. The program I went into was a master's in professional studies from the University of Maryland, and the focus was technology entrepreneurship. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a, it's a really cool program um, that allowed me to kind of look at the business side. I debated an MBA, but it was, the programs I was looking at were one expensive and two maybe a little bit more academic than my mind is suited for. Mm-hmm. Um, and already working as a user experience designer, I didn't necessarily want to, I didn't feel that a master's in user experience would actually excel me any further in my career. I kind of wanted something that would touch both business, strategy, product, and design all at the same time. And I found that in this program. Fantastic timing. Yeah, it really was. Uh, it was it was awesome to go through. It was a bit of an incubator where I was able to use my coursework to kind of take this idea of covalent and validate it and uh, go through the process of, I mean, a lot of it was really grounded in user experience in terms of like customer discovery and, and the number of interviews we did to try to estimate the market and where it fit in the market. And mm-hmm. so it was all really relevant stuff that I could apply to my day job, but also, you know, my assignments, I was able to ultimately end up with a business plan and pitch deck. And I built a prototype along the way of kind of what I wanted Covalent to be. So if it was in the right position, uh, it would have been, I would have been pretty well equipped to go and start pitching to VCs and um, uh, potentially trying to raise some money to, to build it out, mm-hmm. which was really cool. So it that kind of gave me the confidence at the end of that, uh, that program and, and after getting, after graduating that I, I decided you know, maybe I will try to do this full time. So I made the jump from Tiro and spent about two months heads down trying to hack together kind of the platform, <laughs> um, which I'm, I'm by no means am I an engineer or do I consider myself super technical, but I, I know enough to kind of annoy the people who are technical around me. <laughs> but That's, that's valuable. <laughs> and and I was able to kind of to, to get the beginnings of this platform stood up and so that... Um, I could take it from kind of this MVP to an actual platform where people could join and, and interact with each other. And for the most part, it, it worked out pretty well. Um, I'd say that I, in the course of the six months, one of the things that did happen was that, you know, I wasn't necessarily think I was thinking more in a product sense and not necessarily in a business sense. And so I didn't focus on revenue generation right away. And the downfall with not doing that was that I didn't necessarily have a good answer for investors about, well, how are you going to make our money back? Sure. And so I didn't want to compromise the values that I brought into the platform um, in terms of like turning into a job board or a commoditized marketplace. That wasn't what I wanted to do. So I got to the point where I kind of not only had I run out of runway and needed to supplement by consulting again, but um, I got to the point where I kind of realized, okay, as far as a product, people are using it and it seems like it's there's good engagement. Um, although it's tapered off lately since I haven't been as hands-on, but I didn't necessarily, I need to re-architect it ultimately to, to be something that's profit generating mm-hmm. a lot earlier than it, than its current state. So well, that kind of goes with the territory though. I mean, when you, uh, when you make a move this big mm-hmm. and I don't know if you see it this way, but it certainly is a big move. <laughs> yeah. I- <laughs> right. And, and, and you, you know, like you said, I'm not an engineer. I'm not, you kind of did all this yourself. So in its infancy, I think the key in the early days or something like this is often just to survive long enough mm-hmm. so you can figure out how to make it consistently profitable, you know? Yeah. And it might get there one day. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to automate most of my workflows. And so that day to day, I'm relatively hands off, mm-hmm. which makes things nice because it gave me the bandwidth to get some billable hours in each day. Mm-hmm. How's it grown over the last three years in terms of user base? Uh, so while I was in school, it was just kind of a basic MVP, which was a, kind of a directory. Mm-hmm. People had profiles, but they couldn't necessarily log in or update their information or update 
their bandwidth. It was really just a, I'm a freelancer and here's my skill set. And during that phase, I think I had about a hundred people on the in the directory. Mm-hmm. Once I launched in about four months, I think I got about 450 people on there. Mm-hmm. So that launch was, let's see, I guess summer of 2018, around there. Membership grew from about 100 people I had initially to 450 mm-hmm. in a couple of months, which I was pretty proud of since you know, marketing was not necessarily my strong suit and I hadn't really sure. jumped into you know, Facebook ads and sure. Google AdWords and things like that yet. So it was relatively powered by kind of organic referrals and word of mouth, which was really cool to see. Mm-hmm. And it, the membership has continued to kind of go up. I think we have like 700 members on there right now, although engagement's way down just because I haven't been kind of stoking the continued kind of engagement that I've been responsible for throughout. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do with any, any community. I mean, communities are tough. Mm-hmm. There seem to be ebbs and flows. I mean, I run a, a Facebook group and I've run other groups for, for different things. And there's sort of this this ebb and flow, right? There is, yeah. And, and sometimes it doesn't matter, honestly, whether you're there all the time mm-hmm. or not. But, but sometimes things just sort of take off and, and people come out of the woodwork that you've never heard from before and they're active and they're talking and they're conversing. And then, you know, you get radio silence for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, I think it's the, the nature of the beast. And and I think the larger the community grows, that, that challenge grows as well. But I have to say, I mean, the, the fact that it still exists, the fact that it's it's still out there, um, and I do think it's a unique idea. So thanks. I don't know. Kudos to you regardless. I, yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, it was, I do hope that, you know, it continues to deliver service to the people that are using it, even just from kind of a risk-taking standpoint and trying my hand at skills that paralleled my core skill set. Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't replace that experience without doing it. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I, that's what I like about this whole narrative. It's, even more made even more interesting when you told me they went back for masters. <laughs> yeah. And you're you're immersed in the kind of thing that's sort of feeding this idea. And and I think it's probably safe to say that no matter what happens, you've got an invaluable set of experience, time over a very um specific and yet wide ranging target that I think is never gonna stop serving you, no matter what you do from this point forward. Yeah, it's been a very crucial piece of the conversations when talking to prospective employers about Sure. Yeah, you know, kind of what I've done and why I've done it and how it makes me valuable. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd ultimately love to see some version of it be successful. But at the same time, my metric of, you know, quantifying it as a successful venture is so stretched over kind of that, not just, okay, we launched, we made money and it was good to go and I retired. Like the just the ability to... Um, have I guess a little bit more understanding of the business side of things specifically was was eye opening. Having worked heavily with developers before in the past, I, I had a respect for what they did. I, I admired that skill set, but then sitting down and trying to do it myself, I have a whole new appreciation, a whole another level <laughs> of uh, yeah. empathy for for, for that skill set. So, um, yeah, fair to say that's like you know a question I get all the time, like with my courses and, and things, is you know why don't because sometimes I have conversations about the platforms that we use Mm -hmm. and people are like, well, why don't you just build something custom and build it the way you want it? (laughs) (laughs) And I say, well, (laughs) budget concerns aside, the, the, the skill set and the depth and the number of people I would need to do exactly what, you know, is in my head Uh is enormous. Okay. It's an, it's an enormous undertaking. It's a lot of effort in everybody's part. And then after it's built, you sort of have to maintain it as well. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you got to be careful what you wish for, you know. And and having worked in enterprise for so long, you sort of see what that scale can look like. Yep. You know, when, when something grows and something ramps up, especially like companies I've worked with who went from startup to like enterprise level Oregon in in ridiculously short period of time, you can't you can't ever lose sight of of all the myriad of challenges that occur. When you go there and there, and there are never things that you sort of counted on, you know, there are yeah, never things that you were thinking about. <laughs> always. I mean, every day is another adventure, yeah. definitely, but it's, yeah, man, it's not for the faint of heart either. It's definitely not. Yeah. But you did it, my yep, friend. So I did. Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and even though I say it's not for the faint of heart, if I think one of the things that made me more successful than maybe even some of my classmates when I was in school really was kind of a, an understanding of user experience as a discipline. Yeah. Because I knew that I would have to go out and do discovery. I knew I, that, you know, I was going to have to have something and think about the interface that they would interact with. And I, I knew, like, I was cognizant of all those pieces, which I think 
kind of uniquely positions UX practitioners against kind of other entrepreneurs, um, maybe people with just a business background, or I shouldn't even say just a business background, but with a traditional business background mm-hmm. or even an engineering background, is that what we do as UXers kind of spans the spectrum where we get a vantage point into all these components and, and they either feed us information that we use to make decisions or we're responsible for generating results for them. And I think it definitely gave me an edge. And so I, I, I say this as anybody who kind of has an idea as a designer, as a user experience designer, to not be afraid of kind of, oh, well, it's tough to found something. It's tough to get it off the ground. I think we kind of have an edge when it comes to doing that just because of the nature of our work. And I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, I think it's a point point well made. In fact, you're going where I was going to go. <laughs> the question in my mind was, I was curious, you know, whether you felt like your experiences up to now and your and your background had sort of prepared you for this in a way that, you know, other folks might not be. I have long believed that the disciplines of, of UX and product design and all those things that go along with it are sorely lacking from not only just education programs specific to entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. but to business education as a whole. I tend to think it's one of the reasons why there is so much opposition as opposed to collaboration that is experienced inside an organization between business stakeholders uh, and UXers and designers. It's why there's this constant push and pull. Yeah, absolutely. It's missing context, you know? Mm-hmm. It's And it's really interesting because I think from my perspective, what I've seen more recently than not recently is that there's there's two camps there's kind of this legacy operation model where there's an education on design there's an evangelism of design principles and engagement and see mm-hmm. the table and and that is kind of the the work that kind of needs to happen in that space but the flip side of that is i think that there's a a growing awareness to the value of design starting kind of at the executive level and, and if it's not designers as part of the founding team, they're they're becoming very quick hires right off the bat. And being cognizant of, of being a design-led organization as opposed to an engineering-led organization or um, simply just a focus on the business side. Mm-hmm. It seems it seems that though there's been a recognition that you know, that's a pathway to success, that's a pathway to eliminating risk and by elevating it from the very beginning, it, it gets ingrained in the culture and it makes it a lot easier to kind of not open yourself up to building the wrong thing or, or not understanding the market. There's the discovery aspect of it comes into play much earlier, I think, when you know designers are involved from the beginning. On, and that I've seen that be recognized more and more these days. That's a good sign. Which is, yeah, it's, it's really nice to, to see those organizations kind of recognize that and, and place value on that. And, even compensation for that um, being recognized uh, from the very beginning as opposed to going in and trying to be this catalyst for change constantly. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, I haven't seen it like cross the chasm yet, but chasm, I guess that's the right way to say that. But um, more and more so, I think kind of that design influence that design leadership is, is having a hold and is being recognized. The funny thing is that I think it's being recognized, but not necessarily understood on how to implement. So, you know, I, I have the same impression you do, which is, you know, UX is, is slowly going from something that's talked about, giving lip, giving lip service to um, mm-hmm. inside companies to, to being something that makes its way into more general business conversations. Yep. The, the issue is almost daily, I see evidence that, you know, maybe I'm not right about that because the volume of people who are still sort of struggling in environments where, organizations and, and specific people in specific roles actually are saying, mm-hmm. yeah, we want this UX stuff, but their actions and, and, and sort of the steps they're taking to sort of not allow it in, mm-hmm. right? Or exercise control over certain aspects of things. You know, you have VPs of engineering designing interfaces when they yeah. have UX people on staff. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just wondering... Do you think we're moving out of, we're actually are moving out of that? Or is it just a sort of a location by, by location kind of thing? Is this maturity really happening? Um, well, I'd say, I, I think it's probably tied to the scale of the organization where it's very easy for a startup to kind of be design centric from the get go sure. because of one, the little risk at, at hand for them. And then 
to just their size, they're small. And so it's easy for the kind of that voice to be part of the conversations happening at, at its very infancy. But with larger organizations, I, I definitely think that, it, you know, that's where it's more of a struggle. It's more of that constant evangelism. Is that purely a function of size? Uh, I think it's just, uh, I'd say maybe history as well as size. I'm kind of mm. equating, although it's it's probably not very true, actually, if you've had a really high uh, fast growth company that got to a very big size, this may not be necessarily the case, or it may be. I just haven't necessarily worked um, in something that's been relatively new and relatively large at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the larger companies I worked with have been around for a while, and so culture was already in place, and processes were already in place, and performance metrics were already in place, and so... I think those are kind of some of the bigger things that you're up against when attempting to kind of change that perception and that, you know, realization that you can leverage your resources that are UX resources and and trust them. It it, it kind of sucks from a day-to-day standpoint if you feel like you're always trying to display value and and establish trust, but ultimately I think that's just like the name of the game. Yeah, I think so. And working in in, in an environment like that, yeah, yeah, and I I say that often as well. You know, I, I, when I have to counsel people, I say, "Look, this unfortunately comes the territory." Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> this this constant proving in comes with the territory because because of all the things you just mentioned: history, culture, the way we've always done things, performance metrics, processes. When you really get your head around how much specifically has to change inside a distributed organization of any yep. size, mid size, large, whatever. That's a whole lot of change. It's a whole lot of disruption. And if it all happened at once, you know, everything would sort of ground to a halt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've, I've worked at organizations where kind of there was this constant, you know, it was, it was almost like between 12 and 18 months, there was going to be a reorg to try to approach some kind of business process improvement plan mm-hmm. to try to, to try to get closer and closer to that kind of thought, but not necessarily in, indeed just yet. Sure. At least I hadn't, well, while I was there, I was not necessarily seeing a, a huge understanding from the decision makers about, you know, the structure that the organization was going to take versus the output it was going to produce specifically around, you know, UX and UX resources and engaging with them. Do you think that was a matter of just either some confusion around what exactly all that was or biting off more than they could really chew, you know, just as bigger task than everybody sort of realized? Or is it a matter of maybe a, a fear to commit. In other words, I know we need to get here, but that big black hole, because I don't have any experience in this area, speaking as a, you know, an executive or decision maker, mm-hmm. scares the shit out of me. And <laughs> I don't, I'm not confident that we can make that jump yet. I definitely think that that's at play, that kind of fear of trying to approach something outside of a known universe. Yeah, because then again, it goes to like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to measure it. I don't know how to make sure I'm successful, but it seems like we're going this direction. So here's how I think I can kind of control the outcome so that it's beneficial for me based on the things that I know I can measure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that kind of takes, it's it's a bit of that two steps forward, one step back, just because you're kind of being handicapped by that, you know, yeah. how, can I make, how can I make this change on my terms? Do you think they really want it? Um, it's tough, uh, especially if it's like, uh, the existing corporate culture is relatively comfortable and I don't want to say that there's not an incentive to change, but like where being conservative is kind of the key piece that has differentiated this organization from its competitors in terms of not taking risk. I think it's very easy to say like, okay, well, I won't necessarily be completely on board with this because I can't, you know, I hear that it, it removes risk, but you know, it creates a bit of temporary risk that maybe I can't see beyond. And yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's it's a tough thing to navigate. And it it seems like, yes, there's buy-in at the executive level. There's buy-in at the individual contributor level, especially if you have kind of the resources in place to, to kind of do that kind of work. But in the middle is where it kind of seems to my experience has been where there's been the most challenge in terms of communication. Either there's an existing hierarchy that you're not supposed to break and you can't necessarily raise up an opinion or, or share an experience that might you know help with decision making. Mm-hmm. 
because you'd be stepping on people's toes or going over people's heads and, and how that's received can be really political. Yep. Have you ever seen any of those things be overcome in some meaningful way? Um, I think so. Um, I think it comes down to on a project by project kind of basis, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Kind of demonstrating small wins um, until they become bigger wins. And sometimes that, that kind of starts with like, okay, hey, we'd like to identify kind of how we're doing things currently and, and, and look at how we can you know, be leaner or how we can be better connected or more collaborative as just kind of goals of operation. And, mm-hmm. or, or that could evolve to say like, okay, this is actually how we're going to have uh, people engage with us. This is the process we're going to follow. These are the steps that we're going to do. This is how we're going to sell ourselves in terms of our services inside the organization and mm-hmm. formalizing it that way. And I think, I mean, really ultimately comes down to trying to convince people that they can trust you. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, that takes so many different shapes depending on the culture that's in place, the, the, the structure of the organization. And it, it's tough because there's, there's like personality trait conflicts that come into play. You know, stuff that you didn't necessarily think, you know, as a designer, you had to be cognizant of, you know, yeah, there's the stereotypical like designer ego of like perfectionism or never being done or mm-hmm. being kind of the best designer in the room, whatever, whatever kind of preconceived motions there, there are about being a designer that, that personality just doesn't necessarily equate to success in dealing with kind of all the other personalities that go into kind of making change happen inside of a bigger organization like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I, I think that we as a profession, by and large, are, are ill-equipped to deal with what's out there. There isn't nearly enough, even in, you know, from formal education to boot camps to online courses to whatever, I feel like there's not nearly enough education in terms of dealing with that part, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you just said, and you said it very well, uh, there's a lot outside your your purview as a designer that you don't realize is there. Yeah, and it's even mentioning boot camps and training. Like, I think back to when um, I was doing like the certified Scrum Master training and the certified Product Owner training, mm-hmm. and I I took those as a as a designer. I took those trainings to to get a better sense of kind of the people I'd be working with, what kind of what their objectives were going to be mm-hmm. understanding kind of their, their foundation so that I could better uh, interact with them, which I think was really, really valuable. I, sure. I, it allowed me to have a certain level of access that I wouldn't have had. And I'm not sure necessarily that they were anticipating the designers would attend those trainings and get certified. But ultimately I think it made kind of the, our working teams more successful because we had a few people who had received those certifications. I would think so. I would think so. Yeah. And what surprised me though, is that kind of, as we're training these non-design resources to kind of act as product owners or to represent product and to even for engagement on the scrum master side, there was such a focus on process and delivery but not necessarily on kind of leveraging the best resources for what means. Mm-hmm. When talking through kind of setting the mission and vision for a product and, and kind of as a product owner needing to own that and be a resource and a, uh, a reminder of that, the, it was just kind of established, okay, this is the product owner is going to be responsible for these particular things. And there was a little bit of like, they should make sure that they're, you know, reflecting the voice of the customer and the business. And like that was understood, but it, it didn't say like, okay, but leverage the resources that you have. To help you do that. Exactly. To, <laughs> to establish that mission and vision so that you can get. So, and, and ultimately. Do it all yourself. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and it kind of, it, it, it doesn't necessarily set them up for the best success because now they have this huge charge in front of them uh, and responsibility. And despite being trained, are still left to their own devices in terms of how they think they should solve that problem. Yeah. I mean, I know, and I know a lot of people, a lot of agile um, practitioners or people who came up with agile, right. Mm -hmm. That have big problems with scrum in particular, Yep, because it it built on an, on an idea that was kind of antithetical to some of the the rigidity Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it introduces (laughs) and the siloed thinking and the, and the, like you just said, the importance of processes and deliverables over Mm -hmm people, yep. communication, value, <laughs> the software itself, you know? Uh-huh. 
So it's it's both interesting and enlightening and uh, feels like a little bit of deja vu hearing you talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a, a good bit of that there. I mean, uh, on the flip side, and this kind of goes back to my point about size, because um, mm-hmm. this, this past year, I was supporting a, a, a local DOD contractor, and I was working directly with the CTO on a particular product. Mm-hmm. And because of the nature of the way kind of I was working as a consultant and I wasn't an employee, so there were certain there was a certain level of uh, separation that just needed to be maintained between kind of the end customer and myself. So we still had kind of this telephone game of communicating the feedback and and it was a small team, so it wasn't like much was was ever lost in terms of uh, communicating the feedback from the client and mm-hmm. kind of the direction that it it led to and then what I did with that. But I was actually blown away by seeing kind of agile work as effectively as it did with a kind of a priority placed on UX. And it gave me this, this kind of renewed sense of faith that like, you know, it doesn't have to always be a battle. It's totally once it's recognized, it just makes things go so nicely and you know, I was still I was the only designer, but the, the ratio of designer to developer was was really nice. I think it was four other engineers that I was working with pretty closely, and uh, the communication. You know, when things came up about you know a particular interface needing a particular case that you know we hadn't necessarily discovered uh, up until kind of testing, mm-hmm. which happens all the time, we were able to kind of tackle those pieces together. We were collaboration was right there the, the figuring out of understanding the problem that was encountered communicating kind of mm-hmm. you know why it needs to be solved in the first place was all understood and and really it came back to kind of the whole team was on on the same page about why we're building this thing who it was for what they were expected to contribute to the team um, mm-hmm. but also they had a they had an understanding of the value of their voice um, when raising something up, especially if it was something that was experience related or design related, they weren't restricted to just their role. They couldn't talk about, you know, they, they were free to say like, you know, well, this, the way that we have this set up, this flow could actually be a lot simpler if we just did this, this, and this. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, obviously. I don't know why I didn't think of it. And I, well, I do know why it was because I wasn't as close to the, the product as they were. And so right, right, um, right. the engagement that happened with them, uh, like I said, kind of renewed my faith that once this transformation happens, it really does generate solid results. And, and it just makes getting good work and good products out there, all that, you know, kind of this agile transformation, digital transformation was all cracked up to be, it will ultimately get there. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, it takes some time for, to get to that stage. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and it takes the right people. It does. Yep. You know, it takes the right combination of people. I, you know, one of the reasons I remain optimistic about all this as well, as much as I, you know, talk about it is because I've had several clients over the years where it's just beautiful Mm -hmm. to watch it work the way it's supposed to work. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I have a client in Reston, Virginia, um, who I spent a lot of time with last year in particular with their product teams and their product owners and, uh, even their, their users on internal and external projects. And how this works there is at any given time, there's maybe six or seven people in a room mm-hmm. from, from different disciplines, right? There, there's uh, a designer in the room. There's a, there's a product owner in the room. There's two developers in the room. There's somebody from QA. There's somebody from sales or marketing. Or, and people are, are jumping in and out all the time. And in that room, in a span of an eight-hour day, there's conversation, there's debate, there's whiteboarding, there's actually building stuff and looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's walking down the hall to socialize it with a couple people or, or, you know, spit it out to these maybe remote users, do this. Do and it's, it's just moving all the time. And there are no barriers mm-hmm. in terms of, well, we haven't taken this step in the process and this right, person right. Needs, to, needs to send the communication to, they just dispense with all that shit. Okay? Mm-hmm. And the team is just working and learning in the true sense of the word, it's like it's like build, <laughs> learn, revise, iterate, test, and constantly. Yeah, constantly. That's the last time I was with that team. What they all accomplished, and I was sort of there as as a 
a guide and a trainer. And I gave my opinion every once in a while, of course, as well, but just to, to try and direct traffic. But it was impressive as hell. What they accomplished in five days is the is the volume of of work and volume of value, mm-hmm. valuable work, insightful work, right? Things that are really going to move the needle in terms of of this business proposition and user loyalty, satisfaction, things like that. What they accomplished in five days, I've seen companies take twelve months to even approach. Yeah, I believe it. All right, it, it's it's truly truly amazing. So. Like everything else, you know the, the the dogma that that came to surround Agile and Lean um, mm-hmm. and Scrum and now Safe and uh, you know yeah these all start out as good philosophical ideas. They're about people. You know, mm-hmm. they're about how do we how do we do better collectively as a group, and then they turn into people staking out their territory. Yeah, for one reason or another, you know, and you have to. I think as an organization, you have to be willing to look past some of that. And, and I think as you alluded to, you kind of have to have, I don't know if it's permission exactly, but you have to have a sense of, of some sort of psychological safety or, or, yeah. or a sense of freedom that you're, yep. able to, that you're able to go there. You know, like, yeah. hey, it'd be faster if we just spent the next five minutes doing this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, having that autonomy to take advantage of those opportunities when they come up. It's easier said than done. I get that. But yeah, um, it definitely is. There's so much proof that it works though. One one of the things that you know I look back on and is kind of a unique challenge, I think, inside of those larger organizations is, I mean, when I was a single UX resource in, embedded in a team, things worked relatively easily just because it was kind of our own little dominion. But in terms of taking that fast-paced work where we were coming up with really good solutions and getting them shipped and, and getting feedback and reiterating and all of that was happening really nicely. Mm-hmm. But as I was thinking about, okay, if we were to take this up and ensure that there was going to be uh, UI consistency between kind of how we approach the problem here and how we approach a problem over here in a different team, mm-hmm. I think I was blessed by just focusing on my own little world where I know that in terms of these self-moderated teams kind of operating at their own speed, mm-hmm. um, in terms of sharing artifacts across other teams and, and kind of building libraries and stuff like that, the, um, I know there are tools that make that a lot easier. It requires tremendous effort, though, on the part of those people and a lot of open communication. Yeah, it definitely does. And that's one of those things where it's like, oh, man, I know at smaller size, it's a lot easier. Sure, of course. And I don't necessarily, from my vantage point, know the best way to recommend kind of operating like that at scale which is i think ultimately it's that scale causes some of the biggest um hurdles in in terms of alignment on any kind of initiative ux or whatever else yeah i agree with that i do think though sometimes some of those divisions are artificial and and here's what i mean by that yeah i think that people in large organizations and because i've seen a lot of this over the years there's sort of an automatic assumption that, okay, let's, let's take teams and, and managers, for example. Mm-hmm. This team is working on you know, this, this team's working on this, this team's, and I got my head down and like, let's take the example of UI consistency like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. In certain organizations, because everybody has traditionally worked in this siloed way where I've got my head down doing my stuff, they've got their heads down doing their stuff, there's almost this unspoken assumption that nobody wants to have the conversation about UI consistency or that, you know, they're not interested in that. They don't care about that. Or this manager doesn't care about that. Or they're just, they're going to tell us to go to hell if we bring it up. Yeah. I, I've seen that uh, in particular from the business side where it kind of, you know, there are these kind of blinders on either side to say like, we're going to be laser focused on delivering value in this particular way. Right. And, and so what happens is nobody mentions it. Nobody brings it up. And then eventually I've seen several instances where somebody for whatever, it's a new person usually, mm-hmm. <laughs> comes in <laughs> and doesn't have any of the baggage <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> that everyone else has. And they just reach across the aisle and say, hey, what do you guys think if we did this? And everyone goes, yeah, all right, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And 40 other people go, are you kidding me? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> Sometimes it's just that nobody ever opens their mouth. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, it kind of goes back again to kind of what, what's the culture, how's the culture measuring success? Because if it's, if it's a laser focus 
that prevents people from seeing kind of opportunities to better align kind of across the board. Yeah. And I mean, that laser focus might've been what kind of got you a really high praised in your yearly review or whatever Mm -hmm. before, but, but Mm -hmm. ultimately I think, you know, knowing what to measure about how these teams are performing documentation, cross team collaboration, you know, consistency, like all of that needs to become part of that laser focus that kind of those, those managers have when it comes to their own measure of success. Yeah. And I think a lot of it also, a lot of the resistance stems from this, this, um, sort of idea that it has to be a a huge wholesale clean sweep across the bow Mm -hmm. undertaking. And I think you've probably experienced the same thing in that it's just not possible to do it that way. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You have to take a small chunk of something and and tweak it, change it. And then you have to get evidence that it's working Uh before you're going to get anybody to sign on and say, all right, let's do that this way from now on. And then you take another tiny piece. Yep. And I mean, and that's, that's progressive enhancement, right? Like that's, yeah. Yep. I think this kind of goes all the way back to my point earlier about how user experience practitioners have such a vantage point into even like business strategy because human centered design principles or design thinking, whatever, like whatever kind of name you want to put on the process of just progressively making something better mm-hmm. or making a change, hoping it's better, right? You have your hypothesis and then you know, adjusting so you can take the next step, adjusting so you can take the next step, adjusting so you can take the next step. The people that come in and propose these big sweeping organizational changes uh, and these big initiatives, um, you know, from an individual contributor level, it sounds great when, you know, that all hands meeting happens and everybody's on board, but then after the third or fourth all hands meeting where you're having the same kind of conversations without, mm-hmm. that, without that plan of like, okay, you know, you've charged us to do this particular thing. We agree that it should be done. You know, we, you have, you have the buy-in that you need now. Like the, the last piece is just that process of doing it, like that disconnect and how to actually get it done. And that's where you hope that your regular UX work has established enough trust in the organization that, you know, you can talk and say like, okay, this is what, how I think we should approach this. You know, it's no longer focused on our consumer facing product, it's actually focused on how we're going to change how we get stuff done internally. Yeah. And that same kind of value and focus on kind of understanding the problem. Here's how we can take a step to solve it. If it doesn't work, here's how we can adjust. If it doesn't work, here's how we can adjust. Or if it works, then here's our next step. Yeah. Yep. It's, I mean, it's still solving design problems. It's just where's the focus being placed. And I agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I think. I was, it's it's weird. I'm thinking of this analogy of, of a pearl, right? So I wanted to say cultured, but that's mm-hmm. not <laughs> it's not necessarily what I meant. Um, and that you know, what skills get nurtured maybe inside an organization, and and what those folks' natural aptitude is to begin with. Um, right. One of the things I see quite often that that runs counter to a lot of the the mail that I get, <laughs> for <laughs> example, where people are complaining about stuff. I can't tell you how many software engineers I know in particular who are 1000% on board with all the things that we would typically do as, as UX folks and, and how many of them are actually doing it already. They're just not calling it what we call it. Mm -hmm. Totally there. Okay. Totally there. The culture is, is totally there. And, And what happens is they get on a team, they, they're working for organization and it's sort of like it's sort of like what I talked about before, where they're doing their thing, the UX people are doing their thing because of the the divisions, because of the overarching corporate culture, because of that maybe the command and control nature of certain uh, management folks or executives or whoever. The left hand never knows what the right hand is doing until there's an opportunity for them to be in the same room together, actually doing work at the same time, right? <laughs> sort of in front of each other, and then they both have this moment where it's like, wow, okay, so you're. Kind of like on my side here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't realize that until this very moment. It's funny because I think it's, it takes that, you know, that proximity to realize yeah. that yes. even, even though you're using the same words, the language that's being spoken between those two camps is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, even I think back to like the Agile Manifesto, when one of them, it's like, talks about customers, mm-hmm. uh, focus on the customers. Mm-hmm. And you know, 
internally in one of the organizations I worked for in the past. Customers, because we were an internal agency, customers meant our business partners. Right. And customers didn't necessarily mean, you know, our end users, people coming and visiting the site or right. using the product. Right. And so as we're talking about customers, 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 you know, we have business people think that they're the ones being talked about as the customer. Where on the UX side, we had our UX folks thinking of kind of the the actual folks coming and interacting with the experience as a customer. And users. And users, yeah. And so even that was a huge, you know, saying the same words and at times getting heated about kind of the value that's being placed there. <laughs> when when really, you know, we're talking about, you know, like two different things. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Language is is big. Big, mm-hmm. big, 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 big. But yeah, proximity definitely helps kind of make those translations happen. I think it makes a massive difference. It does. Massive, massive difference. It's like one of the things I want to see die, and, and I, I have beat this horse plenty, but I guess I'm going to do it again right now. One of the things I want to see die off and go away is this idea of, of a staggering between UX and design work and development work mm-hmm. yeah. in Azure organizations. I want it to die. I want it to go away, and I want it to never come back again. For the, the precise reason we just explained, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> this idea where you go do your thing and I'll go do my thing. Look, this is glorified waterfall mm-hmm. in, in the same way because you still have these gaps in understanding. There's a gap in communication and someone's waiting for someone else to do something. And when they get it, it's not what they expected. Right. I mean, let's just, just stop. <laughs> Work together in mm-hmm. proximity. At least if you can't sit together all day, work together for X amount of time twice a day. Right. It's unbelievable to me how quickly for the organizations that I've recommended it to and watched them do it and, and seen what they were able to, to achieve. And I didn't learn that on my own. I learned it from a client who was already working that way. <laughs> yeah. But, but the change in the quality and value of output, the, the reduction in ridiculous rework, the reduction in stress in arguments, and then overall business value of what gets shipped out. Mm-hmm is unbelievable. And it happens so quickly. You think to yourself like, okay, how can I spread this message in a way that everyone will just try it for a day and go, holy shit, we can't believe how well that works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's become one of my missions in life. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny because I think when people hear proximity, I for one think that there's a, a huge value in having people in, in the same room, being able to you know make eye contact with each other. Yeah. But I've also had a, a lot of success specifically with this past contract I was on. You know, I was supporting those developers, but they were based out in Utah. And so there was a time uh, difference. And then the fact that we weren't in the same room, but we were really aided by the tools we had. So, I mean, we were using Slack and we were in connection contact like all day long. You know, if anything happened, from a design side, if I needed feedback, I could post it up and I could ask. Even if that conversation was kind of directed to the product owner about, you know, their their response, you know, it was visible to the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their their feedback was often kind of sought out at the same time. Um, and, you know, I, we had the right mix of personalities. I think that that made this successful too. But, but just the amount of kind of openness. So, like, even if you aren't in the same room, as long as you're in the same communication channels, I think that had a big a big help. We also were able to no affiliation, but I love this tool. It's called Miro. It was formerly known as Real Time Board. It's a virtual whiteboard. So sticky notes and and brainstorming and mm-hmm. and sketching out kind of um, the flows of everything, and then building wireframes based on that. And then you know we even used it as a place to review design comps and and. It just, the, the thinking that went into creating an experience was transparent for the entire team, even though, you know, they're thousands of miles away from each other. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you you replaced proximity with frequency and transparency. Yes. Yep, definitely. And I mean, it not always will it be like, okay, proximity can be a direct, directly replaced with those two things, but it definitely deserves a lot of, of credit for what it can do. Well, you're at least mitigating the inherent disconnect that happens when, when people aren't in the same room. Yes. Yeah, it definitely did that. And it just it was just so nice to work that way. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. And that's, I, I think the right tool probably goes a long way uh, in facilitating that as well, because there are lots of tools that, that 
claim to do that, but you know, if if you don't have everybody on board and actually using it, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> well, we are pretty much close to the end of our time here. So I would like to hit you with some some quick hot seat questions. Sure. So the first thing that I'm curious about um, is, and I'm going to give you two options here because <laughs> I just okay. thought of this. <laughs> There's two variations on the same question, okay? Option one is, tell me about a hidden talent that you may have that no one knows about, or tell me about something that you've always wanted to do, but maybe uh, just have never had the opportunity uh, to experience or, you know, don't have the skill or, or talent uh, to do it. Ooh. Okay. Well, since I don't necessarily hide my car enthusiasm too much, my past coworkers and current coworkers kind of know um, I'm a bit of a car nut. Uh-huh. But what I've always wanted to do, and I've been mulling over kind of how to make it happen, and it might happen this year, but I've always wanted to be a pilot. Really? Yeah. Both my parents were Air Force, and so, but they were. Air Force doctors and, mm. and a nurse. But I was always, when I was younger, we lived on base for a bit. We were always kind of cl- in close proximity. So like going to the air shows and seeing those planes take off and, you know, even the movies like you know, Top Gun was always sweet to watch and behind enemy lines, yeah. anything anything with with kind of dog fights in it or, or really kind of tactical flying was something that it just made like the inside of my like heart just like swell a little bit. And so, yeah, I tried to, I tried to become a pilot with the Marines right when I got out of college, but a back injury in in school prevented me from qualifying to, to go, to get in and to get into flight school. But, um, it's something that I've always, it's been very close to my heart from a very young age, hearing those planes take off, watching them rip around the sky. Like I love that stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, so at some point, hopefully this year, uh, looking into getting my private pilot's license. And so getting up there kind of on my own terms instead of you know, doing it uh, as part of the military. But it'll still be good to gain some altitude. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fantastic, man. Good for you. Thanks. Good for you. Keep us posted. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> All right. So next question is, and this can be personal or professional. What was the most difficult lesson you think you've ever learned? Ooh. Difficult lesson I've learned. Ooh, probably to slow down and to know when to drive forward with something versus to sit back and, and kind of let cards fall the way they need to fall. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten any better at that as you've gotten older? I think I have. Maybe because of kind of the fault of, of not being good at it at first. <laughs> um, I'm driven to try to uh, address the biggest problem in the room. And sometimes, you know, my place is to solve for that. And sometimes my place is not to solve for that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's the responsibility of others. But I think feeling positioned to solve problems in the past has made me feel like, okay, if I'm, I have the capability, I should, you know, step up and and do my best to kind of either shine light on this issue or uh, provide a path forward. Or if I run into roadblocks, figure out a way up around them or, or how to avoid them in the first place. And, And if that means jumping above certain ladder rungs in hierarchy, maybe doing that. And, and maybe that's not necessarily the best thing to do all the time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not easy. It's not an easy balance, especially when you're the type of person who is the person who leads is a person who takes charge. And it's also, I think, hard if you care about what you do, not to feel personally responsible uh, for everything. Yeah. And I, I was in a situation where I was surrounded by a team of people that really had a huge amount of potential. And put that potential on display by doing really awesome work. And it was tough because from my vantage point, kind of the initiatives that were coming down were being reflected in the work that was being done. And yet it seemed to be a blind spot. And so going out and kind of 
attempting to be a martyr for that cause was um, uh, something that, you know, I took pride in, but at the same time was not necessarily the best thing for me to be doing. That's something that I should have let play out and kind of focus more on the long game than the short game. But at the same time, it, it had an impact on kind of my career trajectory. And, and ultimately, I was able to make the best out of it. And I think kind of the happy accident of that is that uh, it did still propel my career forward, maybe not in a way that I anticipated when I was in the thick of it. But, yeah. you know, I, I still can't look back and say like, oh, that really did kind of derail me. It, it, it was a tough lesson to learn. But at the same time, I benefited from it in more ways than I anticipated. Yeah, which I think is kind of par for the course. <laughs> yeah. We, we live and we learn, and I don't think you learn nearly as much um, unless you make some wrong turns now and again. Yeah. Um, okay, last question, and of course it is, it is going to be deep as well. <laughs> You've had a very, you know, to me... I don't know if, if you would consider your career to be long, but I think you've had a lot of twists and turns. I think you've done a lot of very interesting things. Thanks, yeah. You've had lots of experiences. You've, you've grown and changed and um, explored uh, lots of different things. So my question would be, based on all that experience, right, based on everything that's transpired up to now, if you had to give your younger self one piece of advice at the beginning of your career, when you were just starting out, what would it be? Ooh, I would, I'd say like, don't shy away from, well, one, understand who you are and don't shy away from taking risks. Um, if taking risks is, is, is who you are, the doing things that scare me has probably had one of the most profound impacts on kind of one choices that I've made and how I've attempted to go about um, doing things, but, but that's not to say be reckless. That's, I guess, to say be calculating and something that, I mean, I was told early in my career was to not just have your purview be on kind of what's in front of you, the next step, but to think, you know, one step above, two step above where you are right now and kind of make decisions based on getting kind of to that end goal and then reevaluating re that goal and, and constantly refreshed kind of that, what am I doing? How am I doing it? Why am I doing it? It allows me to kind of scratch that itch of always learning, always trying without, again, being reckless and just, you know, chasing after things that, you know, might seem like a good idea on the surface, but turn out not to be. Yeah, but not being afraid to try, even if others are thinking, you know, well, that's, you know, that's not for me. That's fine. But be who you are. Excellent advice. <laughs> Absolutely excellent advice. Well, Will, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your stories. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Joe. It's been great talking to you. And uh, I most certainly hope our paths will cross maybe in person very soon. Likewise. Yeah, I hope so. All right, my friend, I wish you very much success in all that you do. I have no doubt that it will come to you. Thanks, Joe. All right. Take care, Will. You too. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that hearing these stories gives you some useful perspective, some encouragement, and I certainly hope that you remember that you are not alone out there. Whatever you're dealing with, someone else has been there, and just like you will, they have found a way to make it work. Before I go, I want to ask you to please check out our sponsor, Stash Studio. Once again, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome. Visit stash.studio to learn more. I also want you to know that you can find links to our guests' social media profiles, websites, and other things that they have accomplished by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast, where you will also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it is people like you that make UX work. <laughs>